Welcome to the EO Podcast, where we amplify and celebrate all forms of employee ownership. Hello, my friends. Thank you for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. My guest today is Dan Mickle, a sports psychology consultant based in central Pennsylvania. He's also a podcaster and college volleyball coach, among other varied activities. In most of our episodes, we talk specifically about employee ownership, but this conversation applies to everyone, whether they're in the EO sandbox or not. As the pandemic will continue for some time, I asked Dan how he keeps his team and individual players motivated during this time. He has a lot of great thoughts and coping strategies that apply to all of us as individuals and for businesses and organizations as well. In the final segment of the podcast, Dan describes his diagnosis and ongoing recovery from the coronavirus. We featured Dan on episode 114 of the ESOP minicast, which was an excerpt of the full conversation you're about to hear. You can find that episode and all of our archives wherever you get your podcasts or at www.esoppodcast.com. This episode was recorded December 25th, 2020, so you'll hear a few references to future dates that have already occurred in the past by the time you hear this. Here's my conversation with Dan Mickle. I have a great guest today. We're going to talk about an important topic, but first I want to tee up how we got here. I have a friend on Facebook. She's a friend in real life. In the past, she has been a mentor of mine. She has been a colleague. She is a very talented administrator, executive. She's a decent, warm, kind, and loving person. And we were talking on Facebook, and she happened to mention in terms of today's environment that she's weary. And it really resonated with me because I know her to be a good person, and Even the word weary struck me uh, to my core. You hear a lot of people say, I'm sick of what's going on or that kind of thing, but weary to me was deep and profound. So I reached out to my good friend, Dan Mickle. He's a performance psychology consultant and host of The Mental Cast. Dan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brent. It's uh, great to be here and good to talk. I I wish it was a better topic. (laughs) Well, and there are plenty of topics, and you're right, but... My goal, Dan, is not to wallow in uh, difficulty, but to find some faith and optimism. And the reason I reached out to you, and we'll have you chat for a moment about what all the various things that you do, but among them, with the performance psychology consulting, you're heavily involved in athletics. And the reason I reached out to you, Dan, is this strikes me as the analogy would be a sports team in the middle of a very bad, difficult season. That's where our country's at. We've got to go through some things, and, and, and it's not going to be easy, but we are going to get through them. So the conversation I'd like you to chat a little bit is if you're one of these teams in the midst of a bad, bad, horrible season, and I'm not talking about the New York Jets, but if you are, by the way, folks, Dan is laughing with his <laughs> Eagles hat on, uh, but if you're in the middle of the bad season, Dan, you know what I'm trying to say? How do we keep the faith? How do you, get, how do you keep going in the midst of adversity. Yeah, there's two really good components to all of this. And whether you're talking in the sports world and you're talking programs and coaches or you're talking in the corporate world, 
with employees and management, they're both very similar in the aspect of it comes down to process and leadership. And really, this is where you're tested on whether or not you have set up the culture and the process in your organization. Um, I, I coached Division Three volleyball, uh, women's volleyball, um, a, a, as part of what I do beside the performance psychology in the corporate world as well. But one of the things that we take a lot of pride and look at every year is what the culture is and, and what our philosophy is for the program. So when we hit something trying like this, um, we, we sort of have the guide rails to follow what we're going. And I think whether it's a sports team or just a company, whether it's a small business or a Fortune 50 company, I think a lot of times that's where the failure comes. Those, the, the philosophies there, we have these big handbooks and rule books for everything, but what's the actual philosophy that guides your program or guides your company? And that's where we need that right now. That, that's what we're kind of leaning on. And then the other aspect of it is really just basic goal setting. Um, we can say, hey, we just want to get through this pandemic, but how are we going to do that? What exactly does that look like? Um, for us in the volleyball world, our season was paused, I guess is the best word. It hasn't been canceled yet in the fall, but we were still allowed to practice. So I practiced from all of September until November, not knowing what we were practicing for. So I'm asking, you know, 18 to 23 year old girls, hey, let's practice, but I can't guarantee you that we're going to have any matches. And luckily for us, the big philosophy is, and I know this is cliche, it's, it is about the process for us. Our goals in the program, are, first and foremost, are to become better citizens of the world. And we just happen to be doing it through volleyball. But we also um, want to grow as people individually and grow our community. So we just realized that that's part of what we're going to do. We did a lot more outreach in the fall than we normally did, seeing where we could help. Can we do clothing drives or helping our community, um, even though we were still practicing? And it, that's what really drove the players coming in. There was a bigger purpose than whether we were going to play Messiah or another college. You know, It was more about how am I going to grow as a student and then as a citizen of the world. And luckily, our leadership is so strong with our upperclassmen that the freshmen that were incoming, you know, imagine being a freshman and going through this. Your high school career probably ended early and ended weird, and now you're coming into college and it's weird. Um, but because we had that philosophy and everyone buys in and has commitment to the whole philosophy of what we're doing, they grabbed the freshmen and, and everyone dealt with it. And, and I think that's really what we have to start to look at first is what is the philosophy of your program or what you're doing in life, whether it's just you as an individual, and set those goals and figure out what you're going to do. Um, probably the, the biggest problem that we run into is everyone looked like this is like it's free time. So you hear everyone, you saw all of these things on Facebook, hey, I'm going to learn another language and I'm going to take master class and I'm going to do this. No, you're not. Like you want to, and it seems to make sense, I'm going to be home more, but you're going to be stressing out more about your bills, what the future holds. You're not going to have the time to commit to those side projects. So you're just setting yourself up for another failure, starting another language and not following through with it. And I told, you know, I gave a, a, a talk to a bunch of club coaches and, and they range from coaching 12 year olds up to 18 year olds. And I said, the best advice I can give you is just stop what you're doing. Stop having all these Zooms, stop having all these meetings, stop trying to have all these kids do stuff and just give them a break. First off in the sport world, especially the youth sport world, we're killing kids to begin with. They're playing, you know, three sports, trying to do their school. 
we can actually give them a break, let their bodies heal, let their minds heal. It's okay to not do anything. Um, we, we have this culture out there. We have the, and I love Gary, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. Like I love what he does, but that's almost superhuman. And people see that. And, and, you know, he's on the road 23 hours a day and, and, and drive, drive, drive. And do me a favor, Dan, just for the listeners who may not be familiar, tell, tell me who he is. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He started as a, he started, I think it's winecellar.com is the site now. And, and, but now he's a motivational speaker. He started a sports agency, a marketing agency. You know, he just was really good at every aspect and grew it into a, a multifaceted company. Um, but his big shtick is grind now, grind now, grind now, and the, and the rewards will be there at the end. And, you know, he's on the road 300 days a year. He's talking, you know, sleeps maybe two hours a night. And people see that and they want to do that grind. But I, I really think there needs to be a balance. And, and we push so hard, especially in our, our society now in America, um, we need to take that break. And, and for me, I never, I never saw it until the first time I went to Europe. Um, we went to Germany, and it was just, they were being just as productive, but it just felt like it was more relaxed. There, there wasn't, and, and it was because of their culture and how they do things. And I think it's just so hard for us that the minute that we stop doing something, we feel guilty. I should be doing the dishes. I should be learning something new. And, and I think when you said about the weary, that's what comes to mind for me. Um, I, I don't know the friend. I don't know, you know what business she's in, but I can just imagine, especially someone higher up as a CEO, not only is she worrying about what's going to happen to her employees and the health of their employees, she's worrying about the health of the company because ultimately that's the health of the employees as well. So um, you know, maybe having those, hey, let's just shut down, take the few days off, and, and figure out what we can do, how we can work remotely and make it efficient, um, I, I think is the big challenge. So... As the country is sort of pausing with everything going on, Dan, what you're saying is pause yourself as well. So let me ask this. You talked about your your volleyball team, and the freshmen have the advantage of being able to look to the upperclassmen, and they have those role models and, and et cetera. As a team, they are buying in to what you're doing, and it sounds like you're on the same page. Thinking of my friend, tell me how you'd uh, chat with a team member who maybe is going through everything that you want them to, doing the stuff and, and not doing the stuff if it means slowing down, but they're in a funk. You know, they're, boy, we're going through this. We're not positive. We're sure there will be games next year, but we're not positive yet. So what kind of message would you have on that individual instead of the organizational, on that individual of how do you hang on? First, by saying it's okay to be in that space. Um, I think some people get really scared. I, I get sad or I get down. Oh, my gosh, is it depression? And, it, and it's not putting down depression. It's not taking away from the seriousness. But I think people forget that it's okay to go through emotions. It's okay for us to cry. It's okay for us to listen to sad songs for three hours and just kind of get it all out. And I think someone at the C-level um, of a company or the head coach often doesn't want to do that because they don't want to appear weak to those team members. So as the manager, I would go to that person and just say, where are you at? Where's the breakdown? And, and what can we honestly do to help it? Knowing that, hey, it won't be normal. It won't be you know, what it's always been. But there's definitely things that we can do to help this. Um, I think it's a twofold. I think the individual is probably scared to say they need help 
because they're watching people get laid off right and left. And if I go to my boss and say, I can't handle or deal with this, am I going to get laid off? So maybe they're being really quiet about it as well. Um, and then, you know, it's the same as the, the executive then coming down and saying, okay, well, you know, if, if they're not performing, do I need to keep them on the team? And, and I think it's just really, sh- she, should, she should talk to those people and just find out, okay, what can we do right now to make this a fit for everyone? But let's begin to look at down the road. Um, one of my probably most popular talks that I give at conventions is on goal setting. And goal setting is kind of a slip, slippery slope, I guess I would say, in a sense that you can over goal set so much, you don't even begin to attack your goals because you spent the whole time preparing and doing the goal setting that you burned out before you even begin the steps of trying to get the goals. And that's why some people are kind of anti-goal setting. So the process needs to be kind of focused and going through. But one of the things that always amazes me, and, and I don't know if you've ever gone through goal setting, you know, in the professional world, but SMART is the big one, you know, make it specific, measurable, obtainable, all of that. And I started to realize that there's some letters missing there. So, so when I talk about it, we talk about smartest. And what I wanted to, to bring into it was, one is the E is for exhibit. So many people set goals but keep them internal. So if you and I are working on something and we have a common goal or you're my boss, I want to share my goal with you. Or I would hope that you as my boss would share the goals with me. And not just in the, hey, we need to hit this sales marker or we need to hit this, but the process of how we're going to do it. Don't keep that hidden. The other one is to seek out help. A lot of times people goal set and they don't think to reach out, you know, SMEs or subject matter experts um, or, or people in the field or peers that could help them. Just because you're goal setting doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Let's seek out that help. And then the other one is the T is for track down roadblocks. The other thing is we want to be, we always seem to want to be so positive about everything that we're afraid to look at what might get me off track of my goals. Um, weight loss is a good one. You know, I'm, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. You know, that's my new year's resolution since it's that time of year. But we're afraid to admit the fact that I have to drive by three McDonald's to get to my office every day. I need to really uh, know that that's going to be an issue. Or for me, and, and I've really noticed this, is Burger King. I swear that they pump stuff into the air that you can, <laughs> you can smell a Burger King from five blocks away. Um, but that may be a problem. But people are like, I'll just ignore it, keep it out of sight, out of mind, and it won't be a problem. No, you need to address that and say, hey, in my goals, this is going to be one of the problems. Or this coworker is going to be a problem. She doesn't work well with me, um, so how am I going to get around that? Instead of thinking, well, maybe I can just avoid him or her, or maybe this time it'll actually work. No, you know the history. If it's not going to work, go through it. And going back to that whole, and I love that you said about how the, the comment about being weary was so deep because I think that's a really deep word. One, it's not used a lot. But two, I think it, it does have that deep meaning. Are you weary about the process? Are you weary about the future? You know, what are you weary about? But they're all intertwined. And, and I think it goes back to those guardrails. If we can really have the philosophy, what's the philosophy of your company or what's the philosophy of that team? You know, again, for us, we know what our philosophy is. Now, when I took over the program, it took three years to get to that point of getting that buy-in. It's not like I can just walk in and say, hey, this is teamwork and let's do it. So this isn't the time 
to re-examine your goals and make them harder or that sort of thing. This is the time to acknowledge what's going on in the world, what is out of your control. If you guys can't play games, you can't play games. And then perhaps remind yourself that we are in a space of time that is not permanent. We just got to get through that space of time. Yeah, and, and a good way that I sleep at night about all of this is why am I coaching? Absolutely, I would love to win a national championship. I want to win every game. I want to have a winner's winning season. But I coach because I want to make the players that come through my program better people in the world. Whether it's they're learning time management through sports or they're learning leadership or resilience through sports, I want to make them better. So the fact that we're not playing games stinks, but that's just one part of the puzzle for us. So then it's just, well, how can I make them better people when we can't play games? We have very competitive practices. Our practices aren't like what you used to see in Hoosiers or, or you know, the movies. They're not the drill sergeant. Everything's competitive in our gym. We track every, every drill, and, and we, we don't even call them drills. We call them grills um, for game-like drills. But everything's scored just like a match. So whether we're working on a specific skill in volleyball like serving, we score it. So a player, and, and we don't do it because I want to set my starting lineup and I'm going to say, hey, this is how you did this week. We do it so that the players can see that they're growing. So that's another way in the corporate world kind of tying that back. And, and when I started Soul Performance Academy, it, it was all geared athletics. But then I started getting a lot of corporate people calling and saying, hey, what can you do for us? And I never realized how they're very similar in the world. But in the corporate world, we have a lot of people that, hey, these are your sales goals. But then there's no support on them. How are you reaching their sales goals? What can I do for you to reach those sales goals? Do you have the tools? Do you have the culture? Um, and I think too many times there, there's these large companies that just kind of go through farming people like these are your goals. You didn't make it. You're fired. Put an ad. Hire someone new. Train them. Here's your goal. And sometimes you'll get those people that already know how to set the goals and, and ask for the help and surround them. But, but I think that's probably the biggest failure, and, and that's where it's going to lead in this pandemic. If I was the CEO of the company, I would probably get in front of the whole, whole company, definitely the managers, but, but I like to think we're all in this together. And, and you get it with ESOP. I mean, you literally With employee ownership, absolutely. You're all in it together. So I would address the whole company and say, hey, look, this is what we're unsure of. We don't know where our supply chain's coming from. We don't know that we can get these things. Um, so this is how we're going to combat it or we're opening it up. Uh, I just talked to a, a local friend that owns a pizza shop and they're having a hard time getting French fries now. You know, French fries is a staple. What are you going to do? Well, we can't get French fries. Nothing I can do about it. So we're going to switch all our value meals to onion rings now or chips or, you know, what, whatever they can get. And we're going to be, do the best we can and hopefully the supply will come back. Um, I would imagine overseas this is the conversations that's happening in, in London or in England, you know, with the whole, the bans and, and Brexit and everything that's going on. Maybe they're not able to get stuff into England right now that they've been able to with the travel ban. So how are you going to get around that? Um, we saw it at the beginning of the pandemic, especially in the tech world, people not being able to get product because everything coming in from China is being held up in customs. So what can you do? You know, I'm a firm and I need 50 computers for my new firm, but they're being held up in customs. Well, maybe I can reach out and get you some older stuff or leased stuff and at least get you going. And I, and I think that's, that's probably what everyone needs to look at. 
um, it, it's okay to understand that this is devastating. And it, and it is devastating on so many levels. Um, economically, health-wise, everything. This is a devastating situation. We, we can't turn a blind eye to that, but we need to recognize it, move on, and figure out how to get around in this. And, and it's not just filling the space with, okay, well, we're going to cross-train our employees into something new. Is that really worth your time, or could you spend um, their knowledge and finding ways to do things that are most effective with what you have? Versus like the learning a new language and, and cross training, and in the sports world, that's you know that's just what we're doing. I probably won't know until the next meeting of our conference presidents is until January eighth. So January eighth is when I might find out that we have a season. Our kids come back on campus February first, so I got to jam a whole season in there between March and May with finals and graduation and and all of that, um, with no guarantee that if the presidents meet in early January and say that it's on, that it will actually be on if facts change with the pandemic and that sort of thing. So even when they say, hey, gear up and start ready, and none of us want this, this is the conversation that we're having. And by the way, with the motivation of you're going to gear up, but it's in the back of your mind that the last week of February, after you've rocked February, it could be closed down again. So that's keeping that motivation that you're working hard even if you don't get to the games. Yeah, and I guess I just explain how we work practice-wise. Um, traditionally, we, we start in August with our preseason. We end at NCAA championships in November. And then we have what's called our non-traditional, or we call it our spring season because we're technically not playing in the spring. We play in the fall. We're allowed to have 16 contacts during that time and it has to be in no more than five consecutive weeks we can change when we start that up until the week before we decide to start it so typically we go in april it's nice out it's spring break is done sometimes we do it over spring break so we can go out of the country and play maybe or do some tournaments down south in florida or something We didn't have a trip plan. We were just going to do a traditional. We were going to practice for 16 days in the spring, and then we were done for the year. As I was monitoring everything, I just got this feeling that things were going to get shut down. And and obviously, that's a whole other decision of, of politics and what's going on, and it is what it is. I just do what I'm told. So I got our team together and our coaches, and I said, the earliest that we're allowed to go is February 1st. I said, look. We've never gone this early, but I just got a bad feeling about this whole COVID. And, and at that time, we had no idea what's going on. Um, I said, I would really like to, let's just go right out of the gate, February 2nd. When you guys, you guys get back on the 1st, I'll give you one night on campus. Let's just start our 16 days and let's just get done with it. Out of the 18 teams in our conference, we were the only one that got a spring season because we were the only one that moved it. So we're already um, a season ahead of everyone. This year, um, and, and ironically, the day that we were done, the next day was March 14th when the governor shuts everything down. Right. So we literally finished that day, and then the next day everything got shut down. We got our whole season in. So then when we were looking at the summer and all the regulations, our president, and, and I, I love our president at the, at the school, decided, I can't argue with everyone. 
about the masks and what's going on. So let's, everyone has to wear a mask and everyone has to social distance on campus. Everyone. And Which was earlier than a lot of campuses were doing, and that's still pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. And and she said, I just don't want non-athletic students saying, well, why do the athletes get to practice without a mask on, you know, and all that. And we weren't, we haven't tested, we weren't doing testing because the cost of that would, would kill our already hurting budgets. So I opted, um, you know, we, we couldn't have six players on each side of the volleyball court because we couldn't distance and stay within the volleyball court. But we figured out and we measured it and we watched film to see how many times we could get four. Now, the problem with that is I have 16 players. If I put four and four in a court, I got a bunch of kids just sitting around not doing anything. So we went outside. We purchased outdoor volleyball nets. We went out on our field right outside our gym. And from September until mid-November, right before Thanksgiving break, we were practicing four days a week outside. And luckily, the weather... completely held up for us it wasn't an issue but that's how we changed and i i didn't mope of course i'd like to be in our gym running the way that we would normally be playing but i just felt that wasn't effective and i said let's go outside four on four we set four nets up so everyone's playing at the full time and i think that's where people have to look at i didn't mope i didn't complain i mean i was upset upset's not a good word. I was disappointed that we couldn't be in the gym and doing what we wanted to do. But I looked at how can we do it? And then the same thing happened. A lot of the schools in our conference, now a lot more were able to go and practice, but there's still a big chunk that haven't touched the volleyball since last November of, of 2018. So now I'm going to be two seasons ahead of a lot of our competitors. And that's what I just kept hounding to our team. Like that's what your motivation is. If we don't have a season in the spring, I'm sorry to our seniors. Now, for me, luckily the way it works out, I only have four seniors. Three of them, and and NCAA has given a waiver to everyone for this year. So even if you play this year, you don't lose a year of eligibility. Um, Luckily for me, I have two of my four seniors are coming back to take their master's degree. So I only had two that might lose out on a season. One is a nursing student who is already doing her clinicals and knee-deep doing overtime at the hospital and said, look, I'm not going to play even if we have a season. I'm just, this is the field I'm going into. And And she's needed right now. Yeah, and and I'll tell you, and and I don't want to get off topic on it, but but one of the heartbreaking stories from her is her we just talked right before Thanksgiving, um, you know, how are things going? Because she didn't practice with us um, all in the fall because she's on a COVID ward at York hospital. So then we're talking about exposures and issues to the team. And she thought, I'm just staying away from the team. I don't want to risk it. And she said, you know, the one thing that school didn't prepare me for is death, how much death is around me right now. And she, I said, I need you to hop on our zoom and tell that to your team. We were in this funk where as predicted, they're starting to lose motivation. You know, as much as I love to be a motivator, there's just a point where you kind of hit that wall. And I said, hey, gang, Kirsten wants to talk to you guys. And she said to them, like, hey, look, I'm not joining you this fall and I won't be playing with you in the spring because this is what I've been going to school for to be a nurse. I'm in the field now. But I need you to know that when you're down and you're having problems, I have to tell probably one person a week that someone in their family has died and they weren't there to be there with the person. 
And that shook my team to the core. One, they rallied around her, which was awesome. Like, they were pumping her up. But secondly, they started to realize, like, hey, when I'm complaining that, you know, we're practicing outdoors and not indoors, or we can't do this and we can't do that, I don't have to do that. And, and, and that really kind of motivated them. Dan, we spoke prior to starting the recording, and one of the things that we pointed out in the business world and on the podcast, I do like to remind myself but others. You and I are in the similar situation in that we are inconvenienced, if that's the right word, by COVID. Uh, it certainly affects those around us, and we're going to talk in just a moment about how has it affected you. But the reality is you and I aren't worried about where the meals are coming from. We're not facing eviction and that sort of thing. And the powerful thing to me, and it may help when we are weary just a little bit, is that reminder that whatever we're going through, someone's going through something much worse or much more dire. And so for me, and I'm weary too, but it's, I just keep looking way off in the horizon and saying, it's going to get better. We just got to get there. Yeah, it, it, it has to. It, well, one, and it will. I mean, I mean, no kidding. But the, the pandemic will be solved at some point with vaccines or whatever. The economy will absolutely come back because it's what we do. Right. It's just getting there. And, and I, I think we have lost as a society the ability to do that, to look ahead. Um, We're too caught up in the moment and the moment is jamming us up where it's take a breath and see what the... Yeah, I, I'm not, by any means, I'm not a history major. Um, you know, I love watching anything World War II on the History Channel. And I often think about what if something like a Pearl Harbor would have happened in this time? Like, would we have the infighting and, and the society tear that we have now with it? But one of the things that I noticed about those big moments in history was people were able to stop and take a breath and then figure it out. There, there wasn't as much knee-jerk reaction, you know, and, and I think that's been part of the problem with how companies have to deal with this. They're so worried about the immediate effect of the Dow and the S&P and what happens that they don't realize that we're going to have these dips and we can ride it out. If, if I close my doors down for a week, it's going to hurt, but it's surely not going to hurt enough or as much as if the business shuts down forever. When you mentioned Pearl Harbor, I thought back to my friend who is weary. And the funny thing is, I gave her an example and I went to World War II, but not Pearl Harbor. And I listened to old time radio on Sirius XM and they happened to have an episode from June of 1944, a year before the war ended. And to my mind, that's where we are, except with one advantage. We're a year, whether it's three months, six months, that's not what we're here to talk about. Next year, there will be a return to quote-unquote normalcy. The advantage we have of the Americans in June 1994 is, as you and I just said, this will end and we will come back. In June of 1994, it was never-ending and no guarantee that Hitler wouldn't have been the dictator at the end. So for me... What resonates about 
the war examples, it's not Pearl Harbor per se, and I realize I'm disagreeing without trying to. It's not that triggering moment. This isn't a 9-11 where we also came together. This is the long haul where hopefully we can find a way to come together, but it's coming together as one and getting through this so that we can get through it. Yeah, and, and I think this ties into the shift and the problem that we have, and it bleeds into it, it bleeds into the sport world, the corporate world, every world is we have lost the art of rhetoric. We, we've lost the art of debate. And it may sound something simple. Uh, when I say that, people think, oh, you know, we're not able to talk about politics civilly anymore, or we're not able to talk about the COVID anymore, but it's, it goes beyond that. We're not able to talk about decisions being made in the boardroom anymore. If you look at some of the, the toughest, and, and I don't want to say failing, but probably not doing as well as they could, Fortune 500 companies, it's the ones where they go in the boardroom, make the decisions, and then that's final. And no do, transparency, do no discussion, no understanding. And this actually goes back to your original point. No understanding what the organization's goals are, no understanding it's that culture. And dude, you are now squarely in the employee ownership space. And you're exactly right. It would be very helpful to everybody down the line to be able to see that. Yeah, and, and, and I think going back to your friend, I think that's how you get out of the weariness is, is the transparency um, in the fact of going to your employees and saying, hey, this is what's keeping me up at night. Joe, I'm worried about your job. I, I'm worried about the way you're trending. My goal is to save this company, but my bigger goal is to save your job or keep your job. Let's brainstorm and talk about this. I think too many people in higher positions, and, and a lot of them have gotten there because they were smart and had a lot of work. There's a lot that got there because they were in the right place at the right time or knew someone in the right place at the time. And I think that's where we're seeing the issue. The, the, the people in the world, and, and I by no means am I a huge uh, Jeff Bezos or even Bill Gates fan. I mean, I admire what they've done and how they've done it. But it was their process to get where they went. Steve Jobs was ruthless. I don't know that that would work today. I don't know that Steve Jobs would be that way today. One of the things about Steve was Steve was transformative. He would still be the hard ass, but he would be able to change and, and, and kind of move his way. And as you know, for seven years, it didn't work for Steve Jobs back in the day. He was fired from Apple. Uh, Scully, I think, was the guy's name that came in yep. and finally brought him back. But there was a period where Steve Jobs, and, and you're absolutely correct, and by the way, brilliant technologist, brilliant visionary, uh, a tough guy to work for. Yeah. And to me, it goes back to why are we, I get the culture wars and I get why blue collar people have problem with people in the C-suite. I mean, there are some extravagant people flying around on jets and doing things that are ridiculous. I have spent time in the C-suite and you have uh, as well, but uh, yeah, the folks making $100 million a week just in interest on their earnings. That's not my world either. Right. And and we're so... I don't know what the term I'm actually looking for is. I, I think that we are just so entrenched against that, that culture war that we don't stop to think that some of them are doing a lot of good. 
if I'm Bill Gates, why do I have to do any of this? I mean, what does he wake up and say, I need to have this fight? Every time I go on TV, then it's five days of Twitter battles about microchipping in the vaccine and, and all the craziness. And, and I think, but that would never happen in his organization when he was there. And that's, that's the part that's the problem. We've lost, and, and I'm not just saying this in a political sense, and I don't want to take this down a political road, because it certainly hasn't been just the current administration. It, it's been trending for a while. It's just now polarized. But we have no one that we trust to at least listen to anymore. We want to have discussions just so I can point out where you're wrong. Um, I don't want to actually engage. I don't want to hear your side of the view. I just want to point out where you're wrong and try and bring you to my point of view. And I think that that's kind of what's, what's losing, and that's what has lost in a lot of the corporate world. We don't have a Walter Cronkite to age myself, somebody that was just relied on and trusted and they could say anything. That type of leader is gone. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because my father and I had this exact talk two days ago about Walter Cronkite, about this whole thing. The problem that I have with the media, and I don't care, take any of the networks, um, and even take the fringe networks. The problem that I have is everyone there is writing a book, doing a movie, doing something. So do I really trust that they're in it for the news and the truth of the news and the facts, or are they in it because they want to become famous? You know, the, the point when the people come covering the famous people become famous starts to earn a little bit of distrust. And the funny thing, Dan, and then uh, I'm going to move into a little segment and wrap up, and neither one of us want to get political. There would be arguments over which of the networks are fringe networks. Like you said, hey, all of the networks, including some of the fringe ones, and I'm like, I know which ones I think are fringe, but people who disagree with me would point to different ones. As That's how messed up this is, that we can't even agree on what we're disagreeing on. Yeah, and, 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 and we don't like going down this political road, but that bleeds into every society now, right? It used to be, when I was growing up, and, and things like politics, religion, all that just was never discussed, especially in the corporate world. You know, you know I'm, I'm 46, so it's not like I've you know, been around in the corporate carousel as much as some people... But I don't remember ever talking about that when I was working in the corporate world. Um, we just didn't talk about it. And, and now it's in everyone's face, which isn't a problem, except we stopped learning how to have those discussions. So not only have we started throwing it in everyone's face, we no longer know how to deal with it. Dan, getting back to my friend who is weary, I think you hit the nail on the head. And by the way, because we were just talking in examples, she doesn't happen to be in uh, uh, the CEO or the corporate world. She comes from academia and, and nonprofits, etc. To me, the weariness is the lack of dialogue, that we're seeing so much ugliness on whatever side. If it's the other side, we think it's ugly. <laughs> If it's our side, someone else thinks it's ugly, and then there are you and I who are perfectly centrist without a bad opinion. No, I'm, I'm kidding, but that's the weariness. It's the lack of being able to have the common dialogue of, okay, what can we agree on? Whether it's masks, whether it's the election, whether it's anything political, everybody is geared up, as you said. And when you talk about hey, someone will go on Twitter and then other people will go on and, 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 and rant and flame them, trying to change minds. 
they're not even trying to change minds. It's, I'm going to beat you up with my opinion, and I don't have any intent to change your mind, or I wouldn't be a jerk about it. Yeah, I'm going to go on here and be as big a jerk as I can, because it's going to get me more followers. Dan, I want to go to one more subject, and for those who may be listening closer or with the volume turned up a little bit, you actually have a little bit of a catch to your breath. You can hear you inhale a little bit, and it's because you actually around Thanksgiving got COVID, correct? Yeah. So do me a favor, and first of all, I know that you're well, but I'm glad you're well, and you and I have talked previously. I'm really glad you're well. I haven't had this opportunity. Can you tell me, tell me what it was like to get it, just your symptoms, how you feel? Yeah, so the week of Thanksgiving, everything was going fine. I went, I know I shouldn't have, I went to my parents and, and had Thanksgiving dinner uh, on Thursday. And then I woke up Friday and had no sense of smell. That was the very first thing I noticed. And the only reason I really noticed is since I've been little, my great-grandmother used to always rub Vicks on me every time I'd spend the night. So now it's been a habit. Probably 300 days out of the year, I sleep with Vicks on. Wow. And it's, it's purely just a habit now. Like, it's just, I love eucalyptus, you know, whatever it is. But um, I wake up and I can't smell the Vicks. Um, and it's on my nightstand. So the very first thing I do is roll over and open up the can and take a big, huge whiff. And instantly, I physically feel my nostrils completely opening up like Vicks normally does, but absolutely no smell. So you weren't feeling bad at that point. You were just like, I can't smell the Vicks? Yeah. That, that was the very first thing that happened. Now, very quickly, then I noticed, okay, I got a fever, which then led to, I think I'm going to eat something. And there was the no, no taste. And, and it was scary. I, at f- two things ran through my mind instantly. And the first one was, I just had dinner with my parents and my grandmother at their house. Did I get it from them? Did I give it to them? And that was probably the part that weighed on me the most. The second part was, I have three kids and my wife at home. What do I do now? And then I started to worry about me and the symptoms. My wife has been extremely, I I say over the top, and I mean that in a compassionate way and, and not in a derogatory way, but has been very over the top about this. She has probably left the house maybe six times, seven times max since March, since it's all gone. She spends all her free time making masks. Um, she's probably made about a thousand masks and sends them out to everyone that she can. That is wonderful. Um, I pick up the groceries, you know, we do the, the, the pea potter, you know, pick it up and, um, we do take out. We don't really eat at the restaurants. So the fact that I got it just devastated all of us because then it was, how did I get it? And at that point going through contact tracing, I was done practicing. I wasn't around the team. I hadn't been on campus for three weeks at that point. Um, and we just don't know what happened. The other scary part about the whole thing is it's Friday after Thanksgiving. I call my doctor. They're all out. So I get the service. Um, the service refers to Hershey Med. They call and say, what's going on? I said, I can't smell anything. I have a fever of 101. And I can't, I have no taste. Um, and it got to the point where I had a cracker that I just dipped in hot sauce. No taste. I could feel, again, the physical changes, the mouth watering, the eyes watering, but no taste or smell of the hot sauce or the food. Wow. So I explained all this to her, and she said, okay, you know, 
any shortness of breath or any, you know, breathing issues and, and none. It was pretty good. And, uh, okay, well, let's get through the weekend. Here's our direct number. If anything at all changes, you know, you, you, you get heart issues, your heart pulse rate, anything, you call us and go straight to the hospital. Okay. Make it through the weekend. No issues. I have an appointment. I do a rapid test. I mean, I literally walk in, they swab my nose and I walk out. It, it was a minute and a half, but then I had to wait. So now it's the week after Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And you're waiting for the results, but you know, just common sense. Yeah. You have no smell. Yeah. Oh, what is this? You know what the result's going to be. Yeah, so we instantly went into. Now, her, my wife and I briefly talked about what happens if one of us gets it. And honestly, we thought one of the kids would get it from school or something going on. So our contingency was more about how do we isolate the kid. Um, so then it was, well, I took over the master bedroom, which had the bathroom in it. And she slept on the couch. And our son slept out with her to kind of keep her company. But... So this whole time, I'm literally watching Hogan's Heroes reruns, and, and I'm, a, I'm a court show junkie, Judge Mathis, you know, all that stuff. It's huge. That's probably my biggest addiction in life. Um, but that's all I'm doing. I'm just sitting there, and I'm drinking water, um, but I'm not hungry. And that was the other thing I wasn't prepared for. Um, I just assumed, now I don't know if it was I wasn't hungry because I couldn't taste anything, so my body's like, why bother? But I was probably eating... I would say the max 500 calories a day on a good day. So I'm now isolated, even though I can hear everyone in the living room, I can FaceTime, I can call, I can do all that, but obviously it's not the same. You're you know? in your bedroom. Yeah. Like if we were doing this over Zoom, it wouldn't feel the same as us sitting right. and doing it. So there was a moment where it got a little depressing. Like it was just like, ah, oh, I can hear and see everyone, but I can't interact with them. So I just wait and wait, and then finally on Friday I got the results back, and it was positive. This is a week after you couldn't smell the Vicks. Yeah. And uh, four or five days after you took the test. Yeah, and, and, to, and, and then that's when I got a little angry. I wasn't angry at my doctor. I wasn't angry at the, the, the people that did the test. But the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, and it took me one week to officially confirm the fact that I had it was, was a little disappointing. Because I know a ton of people that with that law, they would have just shrugged it off and went to work anyway until they got that result, until they get that piece of paper that says they have it. They don't have it. They don't have it. And then, and, and that's what really upset me. That it shouldn't take that long. So was that the extent of your symptoms? So now you've got the uh, positive diagnosis that you know anyway. Did you feel worse? I, I thought it was. Um, and then... What creeped in towards the end, and I'm still dealing with now, is tinnitus. Now, some back history. In 2017, I, got, I had Bell's palsy. And ironically, it was almost the same. Um, I lost my sense of smell and taste. I got tinnitus, and then I had the partial paralysis on the side of my face. And that cleared up after three weeks. So I guess maybe I didn't freak out as much as probably the normal person would, because I'm like, I've kind of been through this. I know what to expect. And I knew that those th just like with the Bell's palsy, the COVID stuff should come back as long as I'm not taking a turn for the worse. Um, and, and I really thought that was the end of it. But what I've noticed now is I have 
the fatigue hasn't gone away. I could probably still sleep 20 hours. Um, it's, it's been, what, a month, almost a month to the day, actually. And, and I could still sleep for 20 hours, but I'm winded. Um, taking the trash 30 yards down to the curb, uh, I had to stop, catch my breath, and then walk back up. Uh, I wasn't allowed to shovel the snow. The wife would not even let me go outside in the snow. But um, our mailbox from the house, from, from door to mailbox, is about 10 yards. By making that 20-yard round trip, I'm completely exhausted, and I just have to sit down. Still. Still, as of yesterday. So this is, if folks are listening, we are happen to be recording this on December 25th, and Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> but this is, and you, Dan. <laughs> but you. Uh, So this is three, four weeks after yeah. uh, you still got that. Yeah, yeah, four weeks after. Um, and it's not getting worse. But my concern is we just had the snowstorm. You know, yesterday it was pouring down rain. What happens if I just get a normal cold on top of this now? That does concern me a lot. The, the other aspect that has, I didn't realize it at first, but now that I'm looking back, and, and I journal every day, I'm a big journaler, and when I look back at my journals, I realize that I'm not sleeping the same cycle that I was. You know, there's all these sleep studies about whether you're a night owl or the early riser, and, and I've always been kind of the early riser, the midday person, and it's now drifting everything towards night. I'm becoming more active uh, and awake around 9 o'clock p.m., and I don't go to bed now till 3 a.m. Because that's where your energy is coming back in the day at I, this point. I, in time. I'm guessing, yeah. I, I don't know if that's, you know, physiologically that's my body switching the switch because I'm finally getting that rest from what I'm doing the day. But I'm really, luckily for me and, and my job, I do everything remote right now anyway. But an hour Zoom with a client, by the end of it, I'm ready for a nap. I mean, I'm legitimately ready for a nap. And I'm just not able to help around the house or with the kids, and it just gets really exhausting. And then you have all the side effects of what you do when you're normally exhausted. I'm irritated more, you know. And um, But the biggest physical change was those first eight days, I dropped 20 pounds. Wow. And I th- at first I thought, well, this can't be right. Like, even if I'm only putting 500 calories a day in, I shouldn't still be losing that much weight. But I did. I, I'm... I guess we could say it's water weight, but, you know, I monitored all that, you know. So I, I don't, I wasn't dehydrated, at least not by the standards that we normally look at. But um, the day, two days before Thanksgiving uh, was my last weigh-in, and I was at 272. And when I came out after that first probably 10 days, I was at 251. What's interesting to me is that you said, hey, could be water weight, could be whatever as to why the weight is, but the reality is 20-pound loss in eight days isn't good no matter what it is, where it came from. And that leads to the fatigue as well and is everything tied in. Your parents, grandparents from Thanksgiving, unaffected? Unaffected. Unaffected. All my kids unaffected. My wife unaffected. um, Everyone completely unaffected. So luckily... it, it didn't spread. By way of wrapping up not just the segment but the episode, Dan, you were careful, not necessarily crazy about it, but you tried to follow the guidelines. You tried to generally be, I'll say, responsible. And getting back to that rhetoric, I don't mean that to be provocative. You just tried to do the right thing. And you still got uh, COVID 
what message, I, I assume your message isn't, ah, it's not that bad. What message would you give to maybe those who are hesitant about social distancing and that sort of thing? Or what message would you like to share from your experience? I think the part that is being lost on all of this is two things. The easiest one to describe is the long-term effects. We just don't know. There's just not enough data. What if I was a professional athlete um, or a just a college or a high school kid. Would I be able to go today? No. Will I be able to go? I don't know. But it's athletes, and we have that mentality that high school kid's going to want to practice. He's going to try. And how dangerous is that? I plan to go in the next week or two uh, to get a full workup, EKG, look at my heart, just make sure there's no scarring. I just, I don't know. You're setting up the baseline, which is very good yeah. medical, that two years from now, you'll right. be able to see where you were today. Um, the other thing that I think people don't realize are, if I'm a small business and I have five employees and this happens to four of my five, I'm doomed. Right. And and I, I think that's where we're losing touch. We're, we're, we're talking about the economic impacts of, of this and shutting down businesses and all of that. But, but really the problem is that could be much more worse than the economic impact in shutting down a business is your people getting infected and they just, they just can't work. Um, we're seeing it with the postal system right now at Christmas. They're saying one of the big things is they have so many postal workers off with COVID protocol. That's why they can't deliver anything. And that's a huge, huge, you know, organization. So, you know, what do we do at the mom and pop stores and the sub shops and the, and the local diners and the restaurants if your waitresses all get sick and your cooks all get sick? There's only so much you can do. And I, I think that's why we need to be diligent. And, and, and if we're wrong, we're wrong. If I have to wear a mask for a year and we find out that it did nothing, there's no harm. But if we find out in the year that wearing a mask did a lot and we didn't do it, how bad are we going to feel? And then you summed it up for me, and I have promoted on the, these many podcasts following guidelines and wearing masks and that sort of thing. But what resonated with me is I would hate to come down with COVID, but I'd be devastated if I spread it to others because uh, it's normally that. Dan, let me uh, do this. First of all, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You are... You're a podcaster yourself, and I see why. This was a lot of fun. People can find you at The Mental Cast, available wherever you get your podcasts. And I saw on uh, social media that you just got uh, onto Pandora, do I believe? Yeah. Very exciting. Uh, I hope people check out the podcast, but you do a lot of the consulting that, as we've talked about, both corporate and business. We're going to put links in our show notes so that people will be able to find you. But I really hope, A, that if people like not just what you're talking about, but how you're talking about it, to reach out for you in consulting. And we really didn't get into journaling. You are the real deal on journaling. Not just you (laughs) journal yourself, but you advise, coach, and that is a whole other fascinating topic. But thank you so much for coming on and joining me today. Thank you. And and I really enjoy your podcast. And I love what you're, you know, uh, we've had the talk about ESOP a little bit before that a former company in the area that I used to work for went ESOP after I left and and had they stayed ESOP I probably would have stayed because the benefits of ESOP and what 
their vision and how they changed and pivoted, I would have absolutely stayed. We had talked about that previously, and as a matter of fact, boy, it was probably a year or two ago because we both travel nationally in our work, or we did before the pandemic, and we never got down to sit down. Uh, But if you don't mind me saying, it was D&H Distributing, and I've talked about them in the podcast. That's why I'm I'm mentioning them. Amazing employee-owned company. And the conversation that we had, and you won't realize this, but it will tie in with some of the podcasts, we have been highlighting with a lot of guests what I'm calling the EO aha moment. That moment when they realized that employee ownership was just, holy moly, the real deal. And you had what I'm thinking of was kind of like the negative (laughs) photographic image of the aha moment of, oh, my former company's doing great and it's really cool, but I left them because it wasn't really... I want to say this the right way because I also grew up with the guys who own it. Right. Uh, the culture, the vibe, everything changed completely when an employee owned from when you were just an employee. Yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned um, when I was there was when um, Dan first came in. Um, Who's the co-president with his brother of the Ma- company now. Right. And, and Michael was the director of marketing at that point, um, you know, working his way up. And I really think when when Izzy um, and and Harry and, and, and every the, the older you know generation that was running things kind of handed the reins over, I think when Dan and Michael kind of pivoted the company, um, saved the company, um, but I think saved a lot of jobs and and made a really really good model. Um, you obviously are in that space, so you know better. But everyone I talk to seems to talk highly of how they made that pivot. And what they're doing, and I still have friends. Um, you, you know, it was mid '90s when I worked there, um, but I still have friends that are there that are, you know, they're they're not too worried about their life after after work because of it going employee owned, um, and 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 that's amazing to me. And I I wish I would have been around for that time. Dan, I really appreciate that, and it's how my world works. I I got you on to talk about keeping the faith and motivation. We then talked about COVID. But even though you've never been in the employee ownership space, you've got an employee ownership space story to talk about, and that's what I do. Dan, thank you much for coming on, my friend, and uh, I hope to have you back again. Thank you. I love it. Keep up the good work. I'm pleased to report that as of the date of this episode, February 1st, 2021, Dan is doing much better. He's not 100%, still has fatigue, etc., but he is doing better. I appreciate Dan's time. Thank you so much for listening. And as you've heard throughout this episode, we're going through an awful lot together right now. And that's how we'll get through it together, which is the best thing about employee ownership. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. To contact us, find us on Facebook at Kiesop LLC and on Twitter at Aesop Podcast. To reach Brett with one T, Email brett at keysop.com, on LinkedIn at Brett Keesling, and most actively on Twitter at EO underscore Brett. Again, that's one T. This podcast has been produced by the Keysop Group. Technical assistance provided by Third Circle Inc. and Bitsy Plus Design. Original music composed by Max Keesling. Archival podcast material edited and produced by Brian Keesling. And I'm Bitsy McCann.